0: Welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Reform. Today, we're sitting down with Dr. Henderson, who has both a JD and a PhD in American history. She's talking to us about all of her amazing work in the legal field and in terms of criminal justice reform. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Henderson.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Of course. So let's start off with um, talking about you. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do and how you got there?
1: Absolutely. So I have two jobs, and um, I actually have three, but I'll talk about two. I have two jobs. The first job, and I think the the job that is most relevant here, is I'm a law professor at Rutgers Law School in Newark, New Jersey. The second job is I currently serve as dean of the graduate school at Rutgers University, Newark. And so we have... um, Uh, just over 700 students in masters and PhD programs and I am um, you know charged with helping them get through, charged with developing them as scholars and researchers, charged with um, recruiting them to come join us and um, and, you know waving goodbye when they when they cross and graduate. So we are uh, very excited about uh, that work. And I have a team over at the graduate school that is a uh, fearless, tireless team. And so um, I'm very I'm very grateful for, it for them and that uh, they allow me to still keep a foot or a finger in the world of criminal justice um, advocacy and reform.
0: That's awesome. Thank you so much. So what I'm really interested in is how your legal background ties into the advocacy work that you do and the fact that it's not siloed. Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
1: Sure, so I, I earned my law degree before I earned the PhD. And I think that um, it's important to remember that there are ways to be involved in criminal justice advocacy without any of these degrees. So none of that is important, right? Um, And when I think about the projects I've been involved with, the initiatives that that I've had a chance to help out with, it's really been because I was personally committed to, you know, the work, personally committed to an ethic of freedom and uh, fairness and justice, and wanted to see Um, those projects through to to fruition. So I first became involved when I was a student, um, initially as a student, so this would have been back in the 90s, with groups that were uh, protesting in New York City around the killing of Amadou Diallo, So Amadou Diallo was uh, killed by the New York City Police Department. He was entering his own apartment building and was stopped by police in the vestibule of that apartment building. He um, had, I think, immigrated to New York City from West Africa less than a year before this. And in the vestibule of his apartment building, he reaches for his wallet and police uh, riddle his body with 41 shots. So that was... Right after I moved to New York City, I think in 1998, and it was with that, with uh, that killing, and with um, the the really poor, awful response by the then mayor of the city, Rudolph Giuliani, and um, leaders in our city who seemed to think that this kind of police behavior was uh, normal, was within the practice of policing, was somehow. Not, if anything, it was an accident. It, it all seemed to me to be so profoundly troubling that I was in the streets and I was in the streets with other folks. And really, whenever there was an opportunity for me to help out with those efforts, I was trying to, to do so. It was a very clear, I think, flashpoint moment for me to see that there are really uh, at least two New York cities. One, when you are a young Black man, and one when you are not. And that realization, that stark realization, um, re- really drove home for me the need to be out in the street, out in the road, whatever, whichever way I could. Now, at the time, I did not have a PhD. I did not have a law degree. I didn't have any of those things. But I was living in a place where I felt that um, it was... No one was safe. I mean, this was someone who was not accused of a crime. This was someone who was not sort of in a police encounter. He was literally entering his home, entering his building. And what is what is more innocent than that? So that's how I got started. So that was a long time ago. That was in the 90s. And as I was in school, if opportunities would arise, I would try to do them. once upon a time, there was a women's prison in New York City in Manhattan on the west side. And I volunteered at that facility when I was a, a law student and with a group of other students. I have maintained a correspondence with incarcerated people since I was 20. So even when I was still in undergrad, um, incarcerated people that I knew personally and incarcerated people that I did not know it's something that I maintain to this day. My staff knows if, if incarcerated people are writing to me to please get that to me because I always respond to, to those letters. I, you know, I, I don't always have much to say, but I do always respond. And the other thing that, that I think I have had the benefit of is I've had the benefit of being in community with people who like really took seriously the need to question the role of police, the need to question the proliferation of prisons. I mean, I built community with those folks, and it has been through other people that I have been able to get involved with things, to get involved with amicus brief opportunities, to get involved with the uh, stop and frisk litigation, which I was initially appointed to serve on the academic advisory council for. So, you know, th- these have come through being in community with others and with really uh, just trying to show up when, when a call is out there. And what I've done, even as a student, as a law student, and as a, as a graduate student, I also did this, is I put that into the work. So I wrote a dissertation. And I'm currently writing a book about the emergence and proliferation of jails and prisons in the slaveholding South. So for me, this is not just about sort of what is happening in 2021 in New York City or 2020 in Minneapolis or whatever. This is about what has been happening for 275 almost 300 years like i'm asking questions about the 17th century i'm asking questions about the 18th century but what does early virginia look like when you know there's just like outposts and settlements and then some small towns and then you bring in an enslaved population, and now you start, somehow, you turn quickly to, we need to start getting some architecture that can help control our slave population, and that stuff quickly turns into jails, and to me, there is a sort of long lineage here that that is instructive, because I think people seem to forget that we have not always had the mass incarceration that we have today. And it's a it's a way for me to engage in some of this advocacy work with a historical lens.
2: Um, and I, I think it helped. That was awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. So thanks for providing that perspective. I definitely feel like it seems as if our community or the country has really woke up to racism now within the wake of what happened to Ahmaud Arbery or what happened to some of the other people who've been um, hurt and killed and murdered by the police, like George Floyd. How do you feel like we can truly wrap our minds around how this is not just a 20th century issue, how it's actually a generational issue that's been transpired over the past couple of decades and really showing light through mass incarceration.
1: You know, I think it's it's important to ask uh, the kinds of questions that a lot of scholars, a lot of carceral studies folks are asking right now, which is how did we get here? Um, These origin stories, they aren't going to be persuasive to everyone because there are still going to be some people who are steadfast in the position that anything that's happened to black people, anything that's happening to Latinos, anything that's happening to indigenous folks in the criminal justice space is completely deserved. There are those folks who will stand in that. And I'm not really trying to persuade them. I, that's not my ministry. I think that for, for me, what's what's key is that there are people who genuinely want to know more. And in this moment where, you know, allyship is being talked about frequently, where um, allyship is being sort of uh, held out as a a positive social good, where people are talking about strategies and ways to to interrupt racist conduct, racist behavior, to actually be the anti-racist that you read about. I think for me, this is a moment to, to double down on, what the things that we know to be true and to not give all of our oxygen to trying to convince people who aren't to be convinced. And to me, I'd rather be building community with the folks who want to be with me, the folks who want to build with me, than to sort of stand on the sidelines and criticize everything and tell you how whatever is happening to you is happening to you because it was your fault. I also want to add that there is much to be learned, even from recent histories, micro histories, maybe of uh, uh, developments in the the history of of mass incarceration in this country. There is something to be learned about, you know, the Clinton administration, there's something to be learned about the post 9-11 Uh, seizure and detention of uh, Pakistanis and uh, Bangladeshis off the streets of New York City where people were actually being disappeared from their families. That's a history. Those stories still need to be told. And so I think that we shouldn't convince ourselves that history is so far away from us that like Well, there's something to be learned, but that was hundreds of years ago because there are recent histories of atrocities, recent histories of policy decisions, recent histories of um, elected officials choosing a belief in in a hierarchy of human value and being explicit about about believing in a hierarchy of human value. There's a recent history about that. And I think the, the more we are able to uncover and really to tell the truth, then the, the better off we will all be. Now, again, there there will be those who, who don't care and who aren't interested and will fight you in that work. But that doesn't mean that we stop. That means we, we push, we push. And we continue to, to walk in, in truth and we continue to walk in life.
0: That's amazing. Honestly, what you're talking about is a re-education. I read somewhere that sometimes the media and I guess the government propagates photos of Martin Luther King Jr. for instance, in black and white because they want people to believe that it was a long time ago, when in fact it was relatively recent. It was within my parents' lifespans for sure. So can you tell us a little bit about how the book you're writing plays into that? I would be fascinated to hear about that.
1: Sure, so I really wanted to tell a story. About, about the relationship between prisons and slavery and not some sort of knee jerk imagined story. Like I haven't ever read a book and, but I think slavery looks like prison or prisons look like slavery to me. So I'm gonna say those are the same thing. Not that kind of reaction, but really try to understand sort of what did that, what do these two institutions look like growing up together? And to imagine slavery and prisons as, as, you know, coming into what could be called their, their worst manifestations together and, and what, what, what it, what it's like to be peers in that way, sort of, and, and how were they related? And, you know, this is a, it's a project that I started almost 20 years ago and um, it is it is pulling from the archival record about the earliest prisons um, in the US South and also pulling from the archival record about the institution of slavery and specifically about the slave trade and what it, what it sort of looks like. What, what is a slave trade without jails? The reality is you don't have much of a slave trade without the intervention intercession of, of public officials of people who are sheriffs, constables, you know, governors, mayors, whoever, judges, all public officials. There is no slave trade without their consent and willing participation in making the slave trade work. And so when 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 folks when I was a graduate student in a PhD program Folks would talk about slavery as if it was a super private institution. So, you know, slavery is really not something that the state was doing a lot of, it was something that individuals were doing. And I think that that was a way to um, excuse the United States, either the states individually or the federal government from making formal apologies for the institution of slavery and maybe even an anti-reparations move. So if I can continue to claim that slavery was not public, that slavery has no relationship to the government despite all this evidence to the contrary, then what 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 is there to base a reparations claim on? So so I started to sort of you know, with the stuff that I was reading and as a, as a graduate student, first, first year graduate student, second year graduate student, I was just reading what they told me to read at that point. But even the stuff that they told me to read, I was like, wait, I don't know if we're asking the right questions here because there seems to be a whole lot of public activity, elected officials, judges, etc., in the slave trade. So like, where is that? And so I think that what my hope for the book is that the book can be, it can be instructive for those folks who who want to, to know more about origin stories, but also that it can be a model for how we tell the stories of institutions that are sort of coexisting in a given place and time, and that we tell those stories in a way that recognizes that these institutions can have relationships that are complicated and sometimes contradictory, and yet continue to coexist and thrive in spite of those contradictions. Um, I think that, that, that there's an opportunity there. And so I'm excited about it. Wow,
2: I am really excited to read that book. I completely agree. I think it's rooted in our education, that we're misinformed, and we're not necessarily understanding the origin of slavery. Like we get a week in Black History Month, where we're like, yeah, slavery happened, the civil rights movement, and now we're here. So there's like a lot of gaps that are not necessarily discussed or that we don't necessarily know. And I think understanding our history will better help us understand how we can advocate for changes or reparations or things that we have to call out that we want. And in terms of allyship, how do you feel like people can advocate as allies against mass incarceration? Because I feel like a lot of the allyship movements are towards police violence when police violence is rooted in mass incarceration. Yeah, I, I think that there are a couple different ways. One way
1: is to help support abolition. I mean, like the easiest way is to just be an ally for abolition. That's how you support folks who are, are wrapped up in, in the system, who are ensnared in the system in some way. And, and what does abolition look, look like? Abolition looks like throwing your effort, throwing your energy and throwing your money behind safe communities and behind wellness among people, including poor people. That's what that looks like. And so if, if, we, if folks are sort of thinking, well, how can I get involved? What is there that I can do? That's, that's one thing to do is to be vocal about abolition and, and, and the promise of abolition. And another thing that people can actually do is to, you know, be active and, and ac- active activity, politically active, political activity can mean different things for different people. I mean, there has been since the 2016 election, a real explosion of small groups, people organizing around different things. People were trying to... Um, uh, organizing an opposition to various administration policies from the, the, the former administration. There's, there's room here. There's room to get together with others. There's room to sort of advocate There there are a whole lot of apps now and and, and easy ways on the computer that you can use. They have bots set up. You can text your elected officials. You can call your elected officials. You can call them every day. And they made it super easy. And so there are ways for people to, I think, engage directly with their representatives, with their senators that simply did not exist six, seven, eight years ago. I think there's also people should put questions to folks when they are asking for their vote. Sort of what's your position on A, B, C, and D? What's your position on cash bail? And why should I vote for you if you support cash bail and the incarceration of the poor? What's what's your case here? And, and, And these are ways I think to again, give, give the, get the issue some attention, get the issue some, some shine, and also ways to hold people accountable and to actually take it seriously. So when you were elected, you said you would never you know, seek the death penalty. This, has been, this actually is happening just this week, right? In Atlanta with the DA there who promised, who ran on a platform and said they would never, they pledged to never seek the death penalty. And lo and behold, they're now seeking the death penalty in the trial of the man who killed all of the asian women and the and the and the, uh, the guests at the spas in and around atlanta so for me like this is a, this is a, a moment for accountability and you know there can be no allyship without accountability and what does accountability look like accountability looks like asking the question, being vocal about the question, demanding answers to the question, and refusing to rally votes and voters for candidates for political office who refuse to or somehow have given up on the pledges that they made to the people. And sometimes allyship looks like money. I'm a big fan of, you know, if... If you don't have the time, then give the money. You can also just find organizations close to you, organizations in your community, or maybe not in your community, but in another community that need money. If you're in St. Louis, give money to the Art City Defenders. If you don't have anything else, write a check for Art City Defenders because they know what to do
0: with your money. Send it to them. Those are all really amazing and important points. And I think think what you're getting at is being able to educate people to ask the right questions and to ask them to the right people and then follow up on those questions. So I wanna ask Dr. Henderson as a professor and as a dean, how do you think educational institutions can better prepare their students to go out into the world and to do just that?
1: You know, I, I mean, I do this, what I'm about to tell you is something that I do in my classes. I tell my students from the first day, everybody is on every day. And at any given moment, I may be with you and it's me and you for 20 minutes. I need you to always be ready. You don't always have to be well-prepared. That's fine, I understand. Sometimes we're not as prepared as we wanna be. That's, that's humanness. But what I need you to be is willing to engage. And so what I want my students to be able to do is with the information that you have, craft it into a question that demands an answer. And then when you get a response, have to follow-up and be ready because if you are sort of sitting here waiting on some elected official to hand you something, waiting on an elected official to do something for you or do something for your community, you will be waiting because that is not the nature of politics in the year of our Lord 2021. That's not the nature of politics. This is all about like, you know, influence trading and I want to be influential with this group and I want this other group to like me and send me money. So I tell my students, you just be ready to get into it with people. And don't shy away from asking questions. Now, that's not to say, you know, be rude and be disruptive and get kicked out of places, though you may get kicked out, that may be okay. But I mean, I've been kicked out, I've been, I got kicked out of prison once, you may get kicked out of places, that's fine. But what I want you to, to be able to do is to be able to, to document what happened And particularly when I'm in classes with lawyers or future lawyers, I want you to make your record because all of this is going into the record. So if you are unable to get the question out and you are unable to respond with the follow up, now your client is missing out on an opportunity to have the record made for them when this case goes up on appeal. So I need you to always be thinking about making your record. This can't just be happening in your head. You need to get it out and you need to be ready to do that. I think the other thing that, that um, the institutions of higher education especially must, must do is they must recognize that our students, the students that we are, that we are, have the privilege to serve in our institutions today, don't look like students from 30 years ago. And I'm not talking about how they physically look. That's not what I'm talking about. But their path to college does not look like the path to college 30 years ago. Many of our students work part-time jobs. Many of our students work full-time jobs. And you may be thinking, well, how are they working full-time jobs and going to to law school full-time? I don't know. I'm always in awe of the students who are doing this. They're working 30, 35 hours a week. They don't wanna tell anybody because it's kind of like maybe not too kosher with the rules, so they don't want anybody to know. But if, if I'm sitting here and I'm looking at you and your eyes are like you know hanging down from, from exhaustion, I know that something's going on here. I can see it. These students don't look like the, the students that, that were my classmates when I was in college and so, or when I was in law school. And so I think that uh, institutions of higher ed really need to think about what it means to, to deliver a responsive education, an education that is responsive to the needs of a student, a community of students who work, a community of students with, with children, a community of students with caregiving responsibility for elders. And I think at a lot of institutions, including my own, this has come into stark relief in this COVID moment because what COVID has forced you to look at is how people are living. And before COVID, you could teach your classes. You you would never even think about what was happening in in your students' homes. But now with COVID and with us all basically being at Zoom University, you can't miss what is happening in some of your students' homes. And I think, I hope that institutions of higher ed don't miss this opportunity. To really get a clearer sense about the students that are in the chairs in these classes. Sort of who are they? What's important to them? And what do we need to provide them in order for them to be leaders and change makers wherever they go? That has to be the work. The work is not let me teach, you know, um, I don't let me teach uh, 17th century English literature the way I've always taught 17th century English literature. Like, Who cares? What we really want to know is how are you making this relevant and how are you sort of reaching into your students' experiences to to, to allow them to see how this is something that they should even be spending time on when they have all of these other responsibilities, all of these other obligations that for
2: them may be more important. It's definitely true that this year has been especially trying for a lot of people a lot of families and some people really had to sacrifice extra just to make sure that they can deliver and school and work and provide for their loved ones take care of the people that are sick some people are you know high risk groups so they can't even go to work so people have to really make up for that and it's really hard to see and I just have a question in regards to meeting your students halfway. So when they do have an idea and they are passionate about solving a problem, how do you encourage them? And what are some things that they can do to continue to educate themselves on how to even solve that problem and how to go about and building that idea to turn into a leadership opportunity or turn into an opportunity to engage with the community?
1: That's a great question. So I, the last time I taught undergrads was uh, 2000. So I haven't taught undergrads in more than 20 years. Um, so my answer will, will differ if you are a law student versus whether the, this is an undergrad. I think for law students, our curriculum is fairly rigid. So there aren't too many opportunities for students to pursue, there are some, but they aren't, there aren't nearly enough opportunities for students to pursue passion projects as part of the educational enterprise. So you're not getting a lot of credit for your passion projects, for example. So in that case, what I encourage students to do is, again, get in community with other folks. Who else is interested in this? What can you do with that group? perhaps that group could could start a program and start volunteering someplace and now you have a student group that volunteers someplace maybe that group can get together and um start working or identify someone this is just an example someone who has been um wrongfully convicted and y'all want to work together to try to assist that can be a little student practice project students can do that in law school um but there aren't too many opportunities for it to be credit bearing but there certainly are ways that they can do this kind of volunteerism and we encourage it and in some places like in in you know in new york there's a pro bono requirement so students have to meet pro bono pro bono hours before they can even be admitted to the bar for undergrads though this is very different because i think as undergrads there's a lot more flexibility in the curricular options and so you know Uh, students who are undergrads and are super passionate about something, I want to encourage them to jump in with both feet. And that may even mean uh, taking a break from school, because the difference is it's a lot easier to take a break from school when one is an undergrad than it is when one is a a graduate student. So if you're an undergrad and you are, say, a junior, a, a first semester junior, and you're super passionate about an exoneration project, or about a, um, a prisoner reentry project, or about a, a no-cash bail project, well, this, this could be the kind of project that you could start an organization. This could be a real path for you. And so I want those students to jump, jump all the way in. And along the way, ask your institution, ask your colleges, your universities, will you support me in this work? And if you will support me in this work, how many credits can I get for it? Because that's what I mean by support me in this work. How many credits am I gonna earn for this? And if I can't earn credits for it, then maybe I need to just press pause. And I, I, am, I, am, a, I am a fan. I know perhaps I shouldn't say that because I'm an academic dean, but I have no problems at all with students pressing pause on their undergraduate studies in order to p- pursue these kind of projects. And maybe it's a project that you're pursuing locally, Maybe it's a project that you're pursuing on the other side of the country. Maybe it's a project on an on a, a Indian reservation. And you're like, I need to be there. I don't need to be here right now. And, and to me, that's the kind of education that you aren't going to get in a classroom that isn't built for you. So if you can create an educational opportunity that allows you to learn more than you would have ever learned at some of, the, you know, some of our, our beloved institutions, then please, please seek that out.
0: You're talking about a practical education, then, in that case.
1: And a relevant education, because you don't, it's it's about it being practical, but also about it being relevant to you.
0: I was going to say, it sounds like you're also talking about a self-driven education, which is, it's a little bit of a revolutionary concept, because when we were growing up, we were told, you know, this is the way that it is. You go through the pipeline, you go to high school, you go to college. Um, you must pursue a practical major. And as a child of immigrants, that was drilled into me every single day. And not every family is going to like
1: this idea. right? (laughs) Some some families are going to say, well, if you decide to take time off, you can't live here. So, you know, so there may be some external constraints on our ability to pursue our dreams. But I have to tell you, it's a whole lot easier to pursue a dream when you're 20 or 21 than when you're 49. Like you don't get a lot of dream pursuits in the fifties, but you surely can get some dream pursuits at 21 and you don't lose anything. You lose nothing by doing it.
0: So in that case, how can we move toward changing the culture around education to make it so it's more acceptable for people to pursue passion projects, advocacy, and really explore themselves and their impact in the world?
1: You know there are some schools that do this very well right now. So there are some schools where students are given given opportunities to um, to create their own educational plan, their own educational path. And I love learning about that because to me it it is so incredibly empowering empowering for students to be able to put together the course of study that they really want, as opposed to I came in with with. Pre-calc, I gotta take calc and college algebra. Like nobody is like you know waking up early for that, but people will wake up early for a uh, ecology project or a climate change project or a project about um, prison abolition or a project about policing. That's the stuff people get up early for and they get excited about. We should be encouraging students to pursue that. The other thing I'll say is there are ways that as faculty we can work with our students to help them build in the kind of curricular flexibility that they need in order to pursue such projects. So, you know, there are independent studies, directed studies, whatever it's called. Sometimes it's called, it could be a co-op situation. Sometimes it can be a a senior thesis situation. So there are ways for us to to do this as faculty to sort of support students as they try to build out um, the curriculum that they wanna pursue. And I would certainly encourage faculty to be open to that. You don't get paid for it. It's extra. And sometimes it's kind of stressful because, you know, sometimes students can be in a lot of places at once. So it's kind of, it can be a little stressful, but it's just so rewarding. And I think that, um, you know, I think the moment, this moment, this historical moment, this moment in our, in our lives really demands that one, that we show up for each other, even when there's nothing on the table, and two, that we are willing to help other people lead and help other people um, help other people
2: succeed, even when
1: there is nothing in it for us.
2: That's. Such a true statement, because even with the development of our project and our podcast, we were kind of all over the place until we had a professor really sit with us and say, like, what is your research question? What are you trying to address? What are you trying to solve? Who is your audience? And they really made us sit and reflect on the importance of having Mentorship throughout these projects and having support from people who are experts, not just in media and things of that nature, but more so just on doing research and the research process and how to target a particular audience and how to carry out that message. And we've seen just so much work come from students with you know, the Flint, Michigan uh, work or with the social justice work and advocacy with the walking out of the schools and really making it known that students aren't going for the norm anymore. They're not just gonna do what they're told because once they really rally together, and work together, then they can get things done, which is ultimately what we can do as adults in our community with our legislators and with the people that are in charge Without us, you know, they're not going to get elected into office without us. You know, they're not going to get our support unless they're pushing for the things that we want. But we have to know what it is that we want to be able to move forward. That's right. with that being said, have you noticed any recent shifts in racial and criminal justice reform since the Black Lives Matter protests in comparison to the protests that you were doing in New York in the 90s?
1: Yes, for sure. So, you know, last year, the Black Lives Matter protests and related protests that emerged in the wake of George Floyd's killing, these were global in scale. There were Black Lives Matter protests, I think, on every continent. There may even have been an Antarctica Black Lives Matter uh, march, or, you know, a something, a, a a demo of some type. And so, I'm thinking that one difference is just the sheer scope, and that there was a moment last year where, you know, sort of the twin pandemics of uh, deep seated systemic racism and really uh, anti Blackness, hatred of Black people, collided with the pandemic and the way that the pandemic was raging through communities um, around the world. I think that that kind of moment really created some explosive possibilities, both both good and bad, um, both positive and not so positive. And and I I have to tell you, knowing that there were uh, protests every day, that there were gonna be demonstrations and marches every day in some places, every day in Los Angeles, every day in Chicago, every day in, in New York, to me, that kind of sustained um, activity, sustained action, is unlike anything that I've seen in in my lifetime. Certainly, um, it was it was heartwarm, heartwarming. It was also terrifying because I saw, I know, and I saw the police respond with um, brutality a- around the world um, and that that response for me just reinforced the importance of the message. And I like to, to remind uh, folks that, you know, when we talk about, even when we talk about the civil rights movement, we, we tend to imagine those folks as like, you know, older fogies, right? But uh, Martin Luther King died before he was 30. He was, he was murdered before he was, before he was 40, sorry. Malcolm X was murdered before he was 40. When you're when you're looking at the people who were active in the civil rights movement, the people who we see on camera being hosed by police, the people we see being loaded into, you know, uh, paddy wagons throughout the South, those were school children. Those were those were teenagers. That that was young people. The freedom riders. Those were young people. So the idea that. that 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 young people have, you know, and, and it really again, it's it's a it's a form of gaslighting. This idea that young people aren't don't have any like political awareness or whatever. It's just a lie. We know that young people have political awareness. We know that young people put their lives on the line and continue to put their lives on the line. We know that young people have been taking the brunt of those police sticks. That's been the young that have been on the on the receiving end of those batons. And so. Um, so yes, I do see a difference. I see uh, a, a far more militarized uh, police department in New York City and elsewhere. I see um, a, a lot more impunity on the part of um, law enforcement officials, peop- uh, law enforcement officials acting with impunity and uh, meeting out violence with impunity. And um and I also see, and you know, I don't know if this is something that I can really quantify, but it certainly feels this way. I see a more rabid response by those who, who continue to maintain that there is nothing wrong. So the people who are personally invested in, um, in the theory that racism doesn't exist, the people who are personally invested in that myth have become even more dogged in their insistence that uh, racism is imagined, that racism doesn't, that racism isn't real. Um, anything that's happening to you is because you just weren't good enough. Um, and, and that that has been pretty um, eye-opening for me. And I think part of the reason why I, I told you before, like I'm not looking to convince those folks is because I see those folks as really willing to put their lives on the line in maintenance of a lie. And, and so if, if you're willing to die for a lie, I, I can't help you with that.
2: I'm not that skilled. I, I, I don't have it. <laughs> I completely I don't. agree. It's, it's been so disheartening to just see how people genuinely don't want to even acknowledge, not even the injustices going on within our community, but injustices that are going on within Palestine, within Colombia within all these other countries going on with immigrants and the concentration camps that babies are at and children are being ripped apart from their families. We've seen a lot of that happen this year. And, you know, before we didn't necessarily learn about it unless we were in school, but it's happening in real time. How do you recommend that we are able to still advocate for our community while also being aware and acknowledging the other issues going on in other communities? Because personally for me, I didn't even know about the things that are going on in Palestine until I really just took time to educate myself. And some people may say, well, we have our own problems, but then at the same time, you know, we have friends of other races. So how can we support other people while also dealing with kind of the own issues that we're facing?
1: I think um, this part doesn't stop. This part doesn't change. And so there will always be more fights. Then we are able to effectively meet. Um, and I think the, the key to allyship is asking people what they need and using your voice to amplify their efforts. And so for folks who are thinking, you know, I'm, I'm super committed to these, these two issues, these seven issues, whatever it is, and I'm interested in that, but I, I don't feel like I have the, the the capacity to take that on as a key issue, but I want to support. You know, remember what I told you before? If you have money, slide the money over. If it's, if you don't have money, if you have time, ask people what they need and how you can be most supportive. Because there is nothing worse than someone trying to be an ally who is all in the mix and being disruptive and not at all helpful. Like nobody needs that, <laughs> and and nobody needs the ally sucking up all the air in the room. So if you're going to be an ally, just ask people what they need. That's a super easy thing to do. It takes you five seconds. What can I do to help? What do you need right now? And if you get replies, then try to be accountable to those folks and meet, meet the need. Um, and, and if you can't, be honest about that too.
0: That's such an important point. And I think it's something that all of us have tried to learn. So I'm actually, I'm I'm an ally of, I'm of South Asian descent, but operating from that perspective and trying to find how I can conduct advocacy and really help amplify those voices in the wake of the Black Lives Matter movement despite being from outside that community has taught me a lot because there were times when I would try and speak up thinking that I was doing the right thing and that I was speaking up for what was right when in fact what I needed to do was listen and there were people who absolutely called me out on that and I had to kind of take that and it was a little bit of a harsh lesson at first because I remember I was like, well I'm trying to do some good, I'm trying to help Um, Why are people, you know, why is this not being received as well? But the truth is allyship is just such a difficult balance. So with that in mind, do you have any parting words of advice for people who are looking to become lawyers, advocates, and allies in the future, no matter what stage of life they may be at?
1: So I want to, to encourage folks who are still thinking about becoming lawyers and thinking about law school, that this is for you. It is not too late. And if you want it and you want to do it, we are here for you. Rutgers especially welcomes you, welcomes your interest. And so I want to tell people that. I want to encourage people to to look at law schools that have a history themselves of educational advocacy, of um, really going to bat for access to legal education. And and Rutgers has that history. I would also say that um, for folks who... I've given my, my advice for people who want to be allies I think there are a couple ways you can do it some are super easy some are a little harder but all of it's possible all of it's available I think for folks who, who really want to be advocates and want to be public with their advocacy um, you know there are a lot of ways to get to get out there and a lot of ways to um, to, to get both uh, exposure and um Uh, connections to people who are doing the work so always always get in community with others like you're not going to be a good advocate if you're out here like trying to um solo pilot this thing it's it's that's not how we don't build community in that way and we don't tear down white supremacy in that way Um, but but what you can do is you can certainly connect with other folks who are in the fight, connect with other folks in your area or not in your area, and, and, and get involved with those efforts and, you know, and be accountable. Like work, work on your follow-through. Be sure that if you have agreed to it, that you've actually done it. And, um, you know, that's hard. It's sometimes hard to hear. And it's something that I struggle with myself because me too, I also have agreed to do things and haven't always gotten around to it, haven't always given it my best work. Um, but this work is, is too important and, um, there are, and it's too urgent. The work is too urgent for us to, uh, approach it with anything less than, than the highest of intentions. So, um, definitely encourage people to get in, get, get at it. There is work to be done and, um, there are folks who are waiting on you and folks, some of you don't even know it, but folks are waiting for you. So just show up. That's the first step.
0: Thank you so much for all of that. I think it's really important to highlight what you said about calling people into the cause, allies, people inside the community and really empowering people to become the best advocates that they can be by training them to ask the right questions, giving them the space to explore and discover that for themselves as well because everyone approaches it differently as you said. So thank you so much for everything that you've shared with us all of your- personal experiences, life lessons, all of the wisdom and the academic information that you've shared with us as well. Is there anything else that you wanna tell us or our audience before we close this out?
1: No, I'm just so excited um, that, that you're working on this and that um, you are bringing these issues to, to broader audiences. Um, you know, we all have a, a, a job to do when it comes to advocacy and that is to make our advocacy relevant to all kinds of folks. And so I just want to say thank you for for doing this and thank you for for thinking of me and and inviting me to join you. I've it's been great. Thank you.
0: Of course, it's our joy and our responsibility to the world. <laughs>
1: Thank you for listening to another episode of Let's Talk Reform. Join us next week when we talk to Candy and Milton and Amanda Hall from Dreamcore Justice. See you next time.